morning and said, you're coming up in the world. And I said, what do you mean? And he looked at the title and he said, it says, the rich young ruler, Bob Crane. <laughs> so, well, I'm not rich. I'm not young. <laughs> Carl, am I a ruler? Okay, so forget it. Rich young ruler, bar, sermon by Bob Crane. The sermon this morning is Matthew chapter 19, Matthew chapter 19, 16 through 30. Jim, I'd pick on you a little bit, but you've got a wedding to pay for, so you're neither rich nor young either. <laughs> when it comes to weddings, are we rulers? No. <laughs> so no. <laughs> Matthew 19, 16 through 30. And behold, the man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus turned to his disciples and said, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With, this, with man, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. We all have in our lives defining moments. Defining moments are those points in life where a decision needs to be made. And that decision is going to determine the outcome going forward. It can be a defining moment for whether or not to take a certain kind of job. It can take a defining be a defining moment of where you're going to live. It can be large items. It could be items that are seemingly small, but are actually quite large. Back in the 50s, Sam Phillips was the owner of a record recording studio in Memphis, Tennessee, known as Sun City. Sam would uh, uh, try and find new talent when he could, but mostly people paid Sam so that he could record their songs professionally, and then they could try and make it in the music business. Well, Sam was at lunch one day, and he came back, and his secretary had laid on his desk this recording of a young gentleman by the name of uh, Elvis Aaron Presley. And she said, you've got to listen to this kid. This kid is amazing. And Sam listened to it, and he said, nah, I don't see it. Nothing, nothing to be heard here. And she says, I'm telling you, you get this guy in here. You've got to see him in person. He moves, he sings, he's, he does stuff with music you'd never dream of. And... Uh, and he says, fine, I'll bring him in, and we'll get a few of the studio guys together, and we'll bring this young kid in here, Elvis Presley, in his teens. Uh, what do you do for a living, Elvis? Uh, well, I, I deliver milk, drives truck del delivering milk. Are you good at it? No. Well, let's hope you're a better singer, you know. They lay down a couple of hours of track, and Sam's like, it's garbage. This kid is singing these songs, and they're just mediocre. They're not so good. So he's kind of disappointed, but he's putting on a brave face for this young teen, and he says, let's just go ahead and call it a night, guys. They're closing everything up, and Elvis has got nothing else to do. So he's standing up there, and he's singing, 
an old Bayou rhythm and blues song called That's All Right Mama. And he's, he's doing it, though, with a country western riff. He's changing the, the chord progressions and everything else on it to give it a different sound. And the rest of the band starts listening, and they get in behind him, and they essentially invent what at that time was the invention of rock and roll right before Sam's eyes. Sam's not a fool. He hits record. The next night, he takes it to the local radio station, and the rest is history. Defining moments. Those moments that if they don't happen, things progress the way they always did. But if they do happen, they change the course of your history forever. There was a gentleman out of uh, Italy, Paolo Nespoli. When he was 12, he watched Neil Armstrong land on the moon. And when, from that point on, when everyone would ask Paolo what he was going to do for the rest of his life, he says, I'm going to drive a lunar lander. That was his one goal. Well, he went on to school and college and was very good at that, but didn't really see any chance in Italy of becoming part of a space program, so he went into the military. Good at 26, when he was uh, helping a, uh, he was uh, overseeing a reporter who was coming out of Beirut, he got to talking to her, and she cornered him on the ship, and she said, what do you really want to do with your life? He says, what do you mean? There's nothing wrong with my life. She says, I didn't ask you what was right and what was wrong. I said, what do you really want to do? And so he confessed at one point he wanted to be an astronaut, but he said, that dream is past. She said, why? And he gave up a military career, gave up everything he was doing, shifted his entire focus at that moment to focusing on being an astronaut, and at age 50, he stepped foot on the International Space Station. Defining moments. Those moments when you get that opportunity where you say to yourself, I just wish I could park at this moment where I have this decision to make and really evaluate it and think about it, but those don't come that way, do they? I can tell you where I was standing and who was around me when Bill Gates, if you're a geek, was standing behind Steve Jobs and announcing that Microsoft was going to bail out Apple because I looked at everybody around me and I said, all of us should buy Apple stock right now. None of us did. So I drive a 2002 Toyota Avalon. You know, instead of the Bentley, that defining moment was supposed to give me, you know? Maybe not a Bentley. But uh, you know those moments when they come and when they go, you know them when you take them, and you know them when they passed. But there's those instant moments where you have an opportunity and you have to know what am I going to do with that opportunity. This morning we're continuing in chapter 19 of, of Matthew's Gospel and this is a time when Matthew at the beginning of 19 is really marking Jesus leaving Galilee and heading on his way to Jerusalem. This is the early parts of Jesus's journey to the cross. Vince and I were uh, uh, laughing this morning that uh, as the pace we're going through Matthew, we might be seeing Jesus' journey through to the cross either at Christmas or maybe next Good Friday. I don't know. You know, we'll figure that out along the way. He's still ministering to crowds, but has a focus on finalizing all of the teachings with his disciples. Matthew 19, Jesus interacts with four very distinct people groups. First, the Pharisees. They've come along and they want to test him. Then Jesus turns his focus to the children whose curiosity and innocence provide him an opportunity to share a lesson about how all of us should come to Jesus. And the last person Andy's going to focus on next week is going to be Peter and the disciples themselves who have questions about all that they've heard and seen in this one day. But before Peter, we have this one person, this uh, young rich ruler. Matthew 16, Behold, a man came to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. 
If you would enter life, keep the commandments. The man said, which ones? And Jesus says, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal or bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? On the road to Jerusalem with crowds following him, Jesus is approached by this wealthy young man. Luke's account mentions he was a ruler. Notice, unlike the children, the disciples don't stop him from coming to Jesus. They don't stand in the way of getting access at all. They see him as a person of stature, somebody who should get through. He's a man of prosperity and probably walks as a man of purpose. This guy wasn't coming to Jesus to test him. He wasn't an opponent like the scribes and the Pharisees. He wasn't coming hoping to trap him in something. I think this man was coming to Jesus enthusiastically. If we look at Mark's account, he bows before him. And so he understands that he is in the presence of a great teacher. He understands that this could be his defining moment. He has a question that he's possibly sought many years in his life to have answered and come up with nothing. And so he comes to Jesus with this question. And he says, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Let me, let me say it one more time. What good thing must I do to get eternal life? I worked for years at an ATM company, and uh, we had millions of dollars in vaults all over the United States. There was one vault in, in Chicago where we kept five to six million dollars at any given point in time. Made me nervous to ever go in because one time I went in and I was working on a PC and there was a wad of $20,000 laying behind the PC and there's cameras everywhere. I mean, it's, it's insane. So I'm like, can somebody please pick that up? And they're laughing at me because they're just used to it, you know? With that kind of money at your disposal 24 hours a day, who do you think steals from these, these uh, armored vault places? Somebody does. Who is it? Employees. Always the employees. No matter how much they try and hide it, no matter how much they fake being held up, no matter what story they concoct, no matter how beautiful they've put this wonderful plan together that's going to see them living on an island somewhere, the employees always did it. And do you know how we always knew that the employees did it? Because we had this wonderful grandma who lives in Aurora, Illinois, known as Kathy Nafo. Kathy was sweet. Oh, she could talk to you. She liked to invite you in and just have a nice time in the afternoon in her room. But when Kathy heard there was a theft, she said, let me go talk to the employees. And I said, what are you trying to get out of them? She says, oh, what they say doesn't matter. What they tell me with what they say is what really matters. So she has conversations and she listens for how high their voice goes or how it drops. And she, she talks about little things and says, oh, wait a second. You and I were just talking about that thing that happened yesterday and you knew about it, but you said you weren't here yesterday. Well, then they start just doing this. So she listens as much for what they're not trying to tell her or even as much as what they don't think they're telling her as what they're saying is straight up. And it doesn't take her very long ever to just kind of pick the whole thing apart. And she's actually had people hug her at the end as the police are arresting them because of the burden that she's relieved their lives of. But it all comes from listening for exactly what's going on when they tell you what they think they're telling you and you're listening for what you know they're telling you. Why is that important? Because Jesus did this type of listening to this young man today. First he said, what good deed must I do so I can get what I want? That's really what he's saying when he's talking about this. 
The man wants to know what good deed must be done so he can get in. I want in the club, Jesus. I, I'm doing what I think are all the right things, but I'm not sure I'm going to get into heaven. Tell me what's missing. I've got all of this other stuff figured out. Don't worry about this. Just give me the last piece of the puzzle. And he pulls out his tablet and he's ready to take notes, you know. This man's desire for truth is genuine, but he's suffering from some real spiritual ignorance. He's functioning really as a legalist. He believes that there is a standard he can achieve by his own actions or something he can do that will earn God's eternal favor. I think this man probably lived his whole life on his own strength, his own intelligence, and his own resources. And the very fact that he's here asking this question shows that he's just run out of ideas and he says, Jesus, what is the next step? Jesus will answer the question, but in doing so, he's going to reveal to this man his true spiritual condition. He starts with that term, good. Why do you say a good thing you can do? Only God can do something that's good. In fact, only God is good. And this is incredibly important. There is one standard by which we measure good. Jesus is clear, only God is truly good. When Jesus created, uh, in Jesus' creation before the fall, he declared, it is good. But that's not how things are today. We have sin. We have rebellion. We have brokenness. We have imperfection in the world. And we have imperfection in each one of us. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's a simple truth, but it's a truth Jesus wanted to make sure they were both on the same footing with. Don't tell me there's something good you can do because I can tell you there's nothing good you can do. Now that might throw me off a little bit at the beginning of the conversation, but this man sticks with it. So Jesus says, well, if you want to enter eternal life, keep God's commandments. And the man says, which ones? I really have to know which ones. And so Jesus gives him a sample of the Ten Commandments. Now notice the commandments he gives them are what I call the horizontal commandments. How to love one another. How to treat one another. He's not giving him commandments on how to deal with God or eternity. He's giving him commandments on honoring your father and mother, loving your neighbor as yourself. Those horizontal areas of how we are to live in society and treat one another. Again, a bit of this man's spiritual blindness comes out. I've done all of that. Well, if he has, I want to meet this man. I'm introducing him to my daughter. If he can keep all of these commandments, I'm in, man. This is, this is the son-in-law I've always wanted. This is the one you pray for, isn't it? When you're praying for a son-in-law or daughter-in-law, it's this picture right here. Perfect, Jesus. Fully sanctified. Apparently, he might have missed the entire Sermon on the Mount where Jesus takes a law and doesn't lower the standards, but he raises them. But let's say he has kept the law. For argument's sake, let's just say he's done it. He's kept the law. He knows to call him teacher. He is somebody who believes in God, and yet he still feel, feels like he's missing something. You ever feel that way? Like, I feel like I've got all of the pieces to my life together, and yet there's still a gap somewhere back here. This week I was at a leadership conference um, for a couple of days, and there was a book we were reading called The Theft of the Spirit. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a Christian book. It's a secular book. Um, but what came out of a lot of the conversations about that book was this idea that if you want to find your purpose in life, you have to attach it to something bigger than you. 
And it was interesting because the majority of the people in that room felt like they had done that. They felt like they had attached it to helping others or their kids or their careers or these other pieces of, of life. Um, some of them had tied it to religious functions and they spoke at a high level about how the, the traditions in their life were the higher things that they were attached to. And one gentleman spoke up and he says, I can tell you I read books like this and he says, I feel so depressed because I have no purpose in life. And so all of these people come around and they start trying to help him get it. And so I said, well, define for me your purpose. I, was, I wanted to hear as, as they're talking about it. And um, as they started to talk, I realized none of their purposes involved God. And so as we kept going on, not all, but several of them, as they were talking, started to talk about the gaps and the holes they still feel. But they said, that's just part of life. Those missing pieces, that's just part of life. And I said, honestly, for me, it's not. Um, but mine is faith-based, and if you want to talk about that, we can talk about that. But I don't have those gaps in my life. And uh, one other gentleman uh, said he, he felt the same way, and then he accidentally used the, the term sinning later in one of his talks, and he apologized to the whole room for using the term sinning. I thought that was kind of cute. But you had a whole bunch of people who were very sure of themselves, like this man is, but yet when they were truly honest with themselves, they said, something's missing and I really can't put my finger on it. I've done everything I'm supposed to do and yet here I am asking you, what else? And so Jesus gives him the what else. Jesus said, if you would be perfect, if you really want to do this, go, sell what you possess and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. If you really want to find out what's missing in your life, the first thing we have to do is get rid of a stumbling block you have. Okay, I'm listening, Jesus. What's my stumbling block? You are your stumbling block. Your self-sufficiency is your stumbling block. The fact that you don't have to worry about whether or not you do or don't have your 401k taken care of, that for you is a stumbling block. Too often when I read this passage, I have always focused on the man giving up everything he has. That scares me a little bit. I like going out to eat. I like having nice things. And by focusing on what this man has to give up, I start focusing on what I think I have to give up. And when I focus on what I think I'm going to have to give up for the life that Jesus wants for me, I've missed the entire thing. Because Jesus follows all that up with, uh, go sell what you have to the poor and come follow me. You see, Jesus' method of talking with this man highlighted to the man what he was really lacking. He wouldn't have made his point if Jesus had just said, money is your God. The man's reaction proved correct that Jesus' statements are, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, and no one can serve two masters. But Jesus had to have this conversation with him where he drew out of him what was going on and where he focused not just on the symptom because the, the money is the symptom. The problem is he's not following God with his heart. He's obeying rules with his mind, not following God with his heart. Right now at work, I'm interviewing for a new leader and uh, so far the interviews have not gone well because when I come in and I bring them in, I say, tell me about yourself. And tell me about yourself as a code word in an interview for just kind of Give me the, the elevator spe speech on your life. And so I've had guys, you know, you know, 
first there was a great explosion, then the earth cooled, then <laughs> you know, darkness, and it's just the like, dinosaurs. oh my goodness, then the dinosaurs, and all the way through, and they start from like when they were born all the way through, and t 35 minutes later, I've stopped listening at the 10 minute mark. And then I have the guys who tell me about all of their great accomplishments and all these incredible things, you know, and I always follow those guys up with, where was your team when you were doing all these great things? Because I'm hiring a leader, I'm not hiring an individual. And if all you can tell me is all the great things you did, and you can't remember the great things your team did, or why what you guys did mattered to the people that you serve, you're not a leader. You may be the most incredible person in the world at what you do, but you're not a leader. When a leader comes in, they start talking about the goals of the organization. And then they start talking about how they've aligned their team to, to highlight those goals. They start talking about how they celebrate when their team has a win. They talk about how when a guy isn't performing well, they, they start to work with them to see, is this person just need another role on the team? They start talking about everybody else in the room but themselves. That's how you know you've got a leader. If I listen to just the accomplishments, I've missed the point of what they were telling me without telling me. And so Jesus listened to this man, and all this man talked about was himself. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, here's some things you should do. I did those already, so I must be good. It was me, Jesus. It was I. I did it, so I think we're okay. And Jesus says, sell all of your possessions, give them to the poor, and come, follow me. Follow me me. Now we often talk about the selling of the possessions, but I don't think that was even half of the point. I think that stumbling block needed to get rid of, but he also needed the first lesson in what it means to follow Jesus. He didn't say sell, get rid of all your possessions, just go over to the lake and throw everything in it and walk away. No, he said sell all of your possessions and when you have nothing but that money, take that money and go help those in need. And so not only is Jesus removing the stumbling block from his life, but Jesus is giving him one of the very first lessons of what it means to be a follower of Christ. That idea of loving others and that idea of serving others. I don't think that was unintentional. I don't think Jesus just wanted to make sure he knew what he was supposed to do with the money that he didn't give it as an inheritance. I think Jesus wanted this man, maybe for the first time in his life, to see all people as God's people, to see all children as God's children, to open his eyes to a whole world where he becomes just one beggar trying to show another beggar where to find some bread. I know many of you serve uh, Hesed House, Wayside Cross, Designed for Work, Teen Night, uh, ministries go on and on all throughout the city. And I like serving with so many of you because you don't go in there all proud of what you're about to do and you don't talk down to the people that you're going to deal with. You treat them as God's children because that's who they are. You listen to their stories. You don't cut them off to tell them your stories. I notice that a lot with, with this group here is that you, you truly listen. You truly take it in. And I, I think it's such an example of how God transforms the heart when we start to lose that, that uh, I'm almost going to say chip on the shoulder where you think you may be more important or less important than the guy next to you, and you just say, we're together in all of this. And I think it would teach this gentleman what it means to depend on someone else. I can tell you when Carl and I first got our first house, my grandpa came over with all the tools because I had none. Uh, he showed me how to scrape uh, 
paint, and uh, then when he was showing me how to scrape paint, the, the place where they patched in the wall was actually filled with caulk, not m uh, mud, so it fell in. So now I said, now we're going to show you how to patch a big hole. And when I got new windows for the house, it was a guy from church, because I didn't have any money, who came over. I always say he helped me install the windows, but I really helped him install the windows. And when the siding was ruined and had to be replaced, it was a, a youth pastor, someone introduced me to the area that uh, knew how to hang siding. So him and I hung siding together, and it was, it was a riot. Sometimes we had to take whole walls down because we'd done something wrong, you know. And time and time and t again, I can talk about relationships and fellowships I've gained because I had no other choice but to rely on the kindness of somebody else. That's community. We live in a society now, some, there may be some people here this morning that, that feel like, well, I'm not in that rich category. Well, we can go into that, and you can go look up online and find out that all of us are one percenters on a global scale. If you look at how much all of us earn, we're one percenters on a global scale from that perspective. But even bring it down to here, most of us have a car that we drove here with this, with this morning. We don't change our own oil. We don't have to rely on someone else to change our oil. We take it to a guy, and he does it. You don't have fellowship with that guy. It's a transaction. We're losing that sense of community because we're getting to that sense where we can uh, really rely on paid transactions to take care of the things we can't do and other things we just take care of ourselves. And I don't know how to get back to the other way. And I think Jesus told this guy, I don't think you know how either, so let's just take this away from you. But we need to get that building of community, not only in the church, but in our homes and every aspect of our life. So in one movement... Jesus removes the block from this man's life and calls him to begin a journey where the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And that's the way it's going to be for the rest of your life. You see, Jesus didn't want an offering from this man. He wanted everything. However, the conditions that Jesus put on this man ultimately reveals his strong attachment to money, but also exposes how worthless all those years of complying with those commandments were to him. Jesus pointed out to the man in a subtle yet very clear way that his God was really his earthly riches. Sell his possessions, give to the poor was lesson number one, not the whole lesson. The actual call of Christ is to come, follow me. Remember I said the man's original questions were all about himself. Too often we fixate on what we can do and too often we fixate on what God can give us when we enter the relationship. And God says the relationship really truly begins when you give your all over to me. So this is it. This is the defining moment in this man's life, isn't it? He can choose to follow God or he can choose to follow the path he's already on. And there's nothing wrong from his perspective with the path he's already on. He's got a good house, a good bed. He's got, uh, uh, has no care in the world financially speaking. He continues to obey the religion he's in. All areas are covered, but he knows something's missing. And Jesus says, what's missing is down this road with me. But to get there, you've got to clear the road. And to get there, you have to trust me and trust the path and trust the direction that I need you to go down. And what would he risk it all for? To follow Jesus. But he just met him. He knows he's a good teacher, but he doesn't know much more beyond that. And that's what happens when God comes to us is God reveals in all of our lives some area we're holding on to that we say, God, we love you. Jesus, we love you. And consciously or unconsciously, we've got this other area we're still hanging on to. And God says, I'm here to remove that stumbling block and possibly use it so you can keep going forward as you follow me.
we all hit those crossroads. Unfortunately for this man, he leaves because of the choices to be made between his resources and Jesus, his resources win. Note also that he went away grieved because I think he understood the choice he was making and probably somewhere in his heart of hearts he knew it was wrong, but there was nothing he was going to be able to do about it. So Jesus says to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who can then be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. You see, rich people struggle to get in because they can't see past the success of their own means. If they could, they'd come back to Solomon's wisdom when he says, I've done incredible things and I count it all meaningless. Solomon said he could have anything in this world he wants and it's all meaningless without God. Now this is an interesting passage of scripture because we, we, we kill ourselves to try and make this not seem like it's impossible for rich people to get into heaven. I mean, we've got a gate on the side of the building, and if you take the pack off the camel and you squish the camel really tight and you jam them through, that'll get them in there, and that's what they meant by eye of the needle. Only a couple of historians believe that. The bulk of them are saying that probably is not true. Even if it was, no camel is ever going to go through that door without a whole lot of poking and prodding and spitting all over you. Jesus is saying it is impossible for these rich to get into heaven, bar none, that's the end of it. It's impossible. You say, well, that doesn't gel with my view of God. I didn't say it. He did. Jesus has a, a way of, of laying things out very simple, very straightforward. And he says, and he, and he makes sure that there's no ambiguity of it. If you are relying on your own strength, if you are relying on your own resources, if you are a guy who's got things under control, you have a problem. Because you can only go so far under your own strength and it's impossible to get the next place with what you have. Remember in the first century, uh, Andy's sermon last week, people believed children had very little value. They also believed that being rich was a sign of God's favor in your life. It was kind of a litmus test of who was in and who was out. But Jesus turns all of that on his head and says, The children know how to come to me, whereas the rich focus on themselves first and others second, and they use that wealth to be sufficient apart from me. You see, children take for granted that there are gaps in their lives that someone else will handle for them. They have a leader that they must follow. They don't have to go to seminars on, she has to change your diaper and that's okay. Or how to look beyond the Brussels sprouts and feel mom's love. They just do it. It's just who they are. They just reach out when they can't do something and they always know you will be there. We lose that as an adult where we're disciplined to be an adult, be responsible, take care of yourself. It isn't that those things aren't important, but it is that those things can make us feel like we've got this all under control when we do not. Jesus tells, me, tells the rich man, I want you to follow me. Here's my first lesson. Use everything you can to love others and then I'll see you on the other side. When God identifies in us something that you're hanging on to, he's really identifying something that makes you rich. And when he points that out, it can be painful. I can tell you for me, as early on in my Christianity, it was my career. 
I had plans. I had goals, dreams. And those had to be sacrificed on an altar. And it didn't come easy for me. And I, I kept trying to rely on God's grace. And God says, I am giving you grace. I'm giving you an opportunity for a better life than you could ever imagine. Or you can stick with the life plan that your guidance counselor gave you at the college. I know for some of you it's relationships that you're hanging on to too long. And you know they're not healthy for you, but you're still there. For some it's an addiction that you're hanging on to. But in all those things, you have to ask yourself, if God were to say this needs to go away tomorrow, what would I say to God? And I can tell you that when he reveals it to you, it is painful. You, if, if you've had it happen, you know immediately what it is. You know immediately that Jesus is saying to you, uh, this is what's making it impossible for you to go to that next level with me. Our problem is not that we want too much out of life, it's that we want too little from life. We're made for this eternal security of lavishing in the joyful kingdom, and we settle for what we have right in front of us. Being part of the kingdom ends your search for your wholeness and replaces it with God's great promises. And in those great promises, we are no longer consumers of what he has for us, but we are stewards of what he has for us. Jesus doesn't tell this man, go and think differently about your money and possessions. And if you think about it, try to give a little more. Jesus says, you do good at keeping rules, but your heart isn't in it. Jesus is consistently clear. Our actions show what's in our hearts. So if we're all rich... And I'd say we are. And it's impossible for the rich to get into heaven. How do we join Christ in that new life? That's verse 26. Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. With, with God, all things are possible. See, it's impossible for me because I'm looking at what I can do. And this is the opportunity for you to say, Jesus, help me with my unbelief. Jesus, help me get past this thing that I think that I can't live without. Jesus, help me to see those areas of life where I'm hanging on to for me, and I'm not looking at the people that you love. With man, all of this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. In John 3, uh, Jesus talks to Nicodemus and tells him, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. It confused Nicodemus then, and I think it still confuses some now, if you want to see the kingdom, then become a child, strip away your riches, become dependent on God, use what you can do for those, the good of those around you. As we close, I want you to think back for a moment on your life in Christ. Think about that time when God revealed to you that thing that made you earthly rich. That area of your life that you were hanging on to in this world and didn't want to give up. As I said, for me, it was my career. And if I would have hung on to that it would have meant an entirely different life for myself and my family. I wrestled with God on this. I fought him. I had to grieve the loss of my plans. And it was painful, and at one point I even said no. Then God began to reveal to me all that I was going to give up. Today I feel like a fool for even wanting those filthy rags compared to what he had for my life. Think back on yours and thank God for taking him through it. If you've never had that happen, I have a tough question for you. Ask yourself if you've had the conversation with God that the rich young ruler had. That honest conversation where you say, you know there's a gap, and God, I need you to identify for me what it is. You say, well, maybe not everybody goes through that. Maybe they don't. 
Peter did. He identified as a Jew who kept the law. God had to rip that band-aid off. Paul had it. He identified as a Jew who stamped out blasphemy. I think Paul's three days of blindness gave Paul a chance to grieve for a couple of days over the losses of what he was going to have for the greatness that was in front of him. Moses had it. He had two kings he could follow. Ruth had it. Do I stay with my mother-in-law or do I go back home to a foreign land with all the uncertainty of staying here? Those defining moments. And Jesus in the garden, Father, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, my will, thy will, not my will, be done. And God not only took away those riches, but oftentimes used them for the next step in each person's journey. When you look through Scripture, I would say you'll find every follower mentioned of God has had this conversation. This morning, all of us are welcome to a defining moment. That choice to hang on to what we've got or give all your glory for him. Which choice are you going to make? Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you that we do serve a God of the impossible. Thank you that we serve a God who says, if you're having an uncertain moment, bring it to me. And I'll change that into a defining moment. I'll change that into an opportunity for you to take whatever it is you may not even re- we may not even realize we're hanging on to and give it over to you. Thank you that your yoke is easy. And thank you that you are as interested for us in the journey more so than even we are in the destination. Bless all these people in our time together. In Jesus' name, amen.